From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is a Vinepair Podcast Next Round Conversation. We're bringing you these episodes in between our regular podcasts so that we can explore a range of issues and stories in the drinks world. And today, I'm speaking with sommelier and founder of Ramona, Jordan Salcido. Jordan, thanks so much for taking the time. Zach, thank you so much for including me in, in this episode. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. So... I imagine that lots of our listeners are are plenty familiar with Ramona, but they may not have been familiar with with the backstory or your backstory. So if you don't mind, can you just uh, talk to us a little bit about kind of how you got into the wine industry and then in particular kind of why, how and why in, in 2016, I think, you, or even before, I'm sure you were like, this is, you know, this product, which at the time I think was pretty you know, pretty out there for, for, for a concept of, of what, you know, wine was going to be or a canned spritz or, you know, all these things that now we take for granted as of course, this is a, there's an industry here. So, so maybe just a little backstory to start out. Of course. Uh, yes. All right. So I got into the wine industry, um, <clears throat> sort of ac- accidentally, um, while pursuing or while thinking that I wanted to pursue, a career in writing about restaurants for the New York Times. So I was cooking at the restaurant Danielle at the time. Um, and I think, you know, in retrospect, I hadn't sort of understood enough of the world to even dream about what working in wine could look like. Um, and uh, there was a particular event, actually, I, the, like the first time I really had a conversation with Danielle Boulou was after work one night and I um, have a sweet tooth and you know, the, when you're working on the line of a kitchen, you go for a long time without really eating. You sort of don't eat a meal sitting down ever. Mm-hmm. At least nobody did back in, in those days. And so I would, um, after service, before I would walk home, I would check in at the kitchen because the pastry team would always leave out delicious extra pastries. And uh, on this one particular night, I had a book with me. And uh, coincidentally, um, Danielle Boulou walked in and he had a bottle of 1989 Jaboulet La Chapelle. And he said, who are you? And what is your name? And what are you doing here? And do you like wine? And sort of, you know, he's so high energy. And and so I, I said, you know, I'm currently working as your bass rapper. And here's a book that I found at the local cookbook shop and, and whatnot. And anyway, that led to Danielle just very, um, he's just so curious. And that was a thing that I, I've always loved about that restaurant and about Danielle. It's like, he, he just really values curiosity. So he, um, he starts flipping through. And then at the time, my, one of my jobs was to, to wrap the, the potato, uh, the black bass puppyette in these potato scales. And he, he stumbles upon a page of a dish, a red mullet with potato scales by Paul Bocuse. And it turns out that that dish was the dish that inspired the, the, the signature dish that I was then in charge of cooking. And anyway, so Danielle poured a glass of this wine and we ended up talking for a long time. And ever since then, he really, like throughout the rest of my duration there, he really looked out for people who he could tell cared and tried to give them an opportunity to do the thing that they were interested in doing. And so an opportunity came um, to work at the La Palais de Neige. It was this, um, this Burgundian wine event that was happening every year, but this one particular year, 
It was only happening uh, when in January in Aspen, Colorado. And so uh, okay. I got the invitation to work this event. And, and then I was told, no, actually, we don't have a budget for you. And I said, if I can get myself there and work for free, can I do it? And they said, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that was the moment for me where I, I was able to line up Harvest in Burgundy uh, for later okay. that, that fall. And I worked at a place called Demendel Arlo. And my job during that particular harvest was um, was really picking the grapes, being out in the vines every day for about two weeks straight. And by I remember like day eight or nine, I couldn't stand up straight at the end of the day because it's you're basically just hunched over carrying a bucket, like a wet dripping grape, a bucket of like these wet dripping grapes because 2006 was not a very sunny year for during harvest. And it was truly backbreaking, but it was also so revelatory. And it was amazing to be in the vineyards that I had read about and sort of finally start to understand how the light hits a vineyard differently based on its exposition to the sun, how the the insects that are in one vineyard are completely different from one a few yards over and and that kind of thing. And so that that was when the practical application started to help the sort of the intellectual piece that you can read about in books. It's, it's when it all started coming together for me. And then I would, I would work in a winery after the picking because uh, after the last grapes are picked, they're still processing that needs to happen in the winery. And, um, and, and I think that's when it all just started coming together for me. I, I realized after sort of deciding to pursue this direction in wine that my the one memory I have of my own, actually the one sort of story I have of my own paternal grandfather, um, whom I never met, is that he used to make wine in his basement with my dad. Um, and my grandfather died when my dad was 13. And so this is the one memory that my grandfather shared or that my father shares of, of my grandfather. And it, I guess it sort of took years later to realize that there is this through line for me of wine at, with this sort of superpower ability to bring us together, to bring people mm-hmm. together who might not have found uh, themselves in a room or around a table otherwise, but even beyond that, and especially sort of now with COVID, it's it's amazing how we can sort of feel connection to a place by drinking a bottle of wine from there. And it's almost as though we can transform sure. ourselves. Um, and so that was, I think really it was that harvest that made me realize that I wanted to to spend my life focused on wine in, in various ways. And I started working harvest every year, um, usually in Burgundy, and then I sometimes would go to another um, region after after that. I um, started to go to Tuscany starting in 2008 after the harvest in Burgundy, and it was it was something that I loved to do. And then as I sort of would come home and work in restaurants, um, so 2007, 2007 was when I took a part-time sommelier position at Nick and Tony's, and that was out in East Hampton. And the the owner, rather the GM, was a woman named Bonnie Munchen. And she gave me a shot, and the, per, the person was supposed to be full-time, no called, no showed on Memorial Day weekend. And so I then had... Yeah. 
uh, it was the best thing ever for me because it was a chance to step up, but it was, I'm sure, a disaster for, uh, for her in that moment. Um, but she gave me this chance, and that led to um, a full-time position at 11 Madison Park after harvest that fall. Um, and I think what I started to realize is any time I would work in a restaurant, I would say, look, I just want you to know this thing that I do in the fall is, is harvest every year, but you know, and it, it will seem inconvenient for a week or so, but I promise you I'll come back and I'll be a better sommelier and I'll, I'll add value to the guests who come in here. And, and that proved to be true. So, um, I think what I was able to do is develop, this understanding of different approaches to production. Uh, there were some years where I couldn't go to Burgundy because we were opening a new restaurant. Um, one year, it was 2011, so I didn't I didn't work a fall harvest that year, but I went to Patagonia to Bodega Chakra the following February. And just the more I saw and noticed, the more sort of through lines I realized between. Um, yeah, that sort of connected um, wines together with a value system and sort of the great wines or the delicious wines and the wines that I, I found really inspiring all had, you know, whether whether the soil was slate or clay or limestone or whatever, and whether the country was Italy or France or Germany or Patagonia, there was this interesting through line of wines that had a similar value system of transparency and of, of course, prioritizing taste and deliciousness, but also um, it was, it was more than that. And I just, I guess I just felt like as I was then fast forward to 2015, 2015 was when um, at that time I was overseeing the beverage programs for David Chang's Momofuku restaurants. And I began there in 2013, like January, 2013, and the mandate that Dave gave me at the time was build me a wine program, build me a great wine program. People don't really associate Momofuku and wine, and I want that to change. I understand there's this community out there of wine people, and it's not dissimilar to the community of chefs that I know and love. So mm-hmm. let's 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 go there. Like do what you need to do. And that was that was an amazing mandate. And the other thing he said was, you already know the rules. Now break them. Um, and so I think that permission was sort of just this big breath of fresh air. Like growing up, my mom had always prioritized the arts for my sisters and me. And I mean, we, my dad's a, a lawyer, so we, we had the pragmatic side too. But I think it was really the sort of, it was like almost like a permission to think like a child again in, in a good way. Like a permission to sort of not be beholden to the machine. Um, a lot of restaurants that are, that are great or sort of that were great. They sort of, there's no room for any creativity or independent thought. You just sort of have to be part of the machine in order for the, the system to work. And this was different in a way that was so invigorating and I remember having this idea. In fact, I, I wanted to call it Thunder Peach. I was reading a book by, I'm going to pronounce his, his name wrong, but it was called Paul Luxus. He's brilliant. He wrote a book called American Vintage. It's one of my favorite books about wine, period. And it basically tracks like the American, America's relationship with wine, going all the way back to Thomas Jefferson and trying to plant okay. Hermitage wines in Monticello and not realizing why they would die all the time. And then fast forwarding to 
um, like a sparkling Catawba as like the the first great American wine. And then, of course, like Phylloxera when we realized that we could just graft onto American rootstock and then start planting the Nifera grapes and then uh, Prohibition and then World War One followed by World War Two. And, and basically, like, out of that, out of this sort of this tiny fledgling wine industry that got kneecapped for a number of decades, out of that emerged um, there. And actually, it was fascinating for me to, to read the similarities between the Mondavi family and the Gallo family. And they, they had very different approaches. And the, the Mondavi family, with you know, spearheaded by Robert Mondavi, had gone to France and understood that there were these excellent uh, French chateaux in Bordeaux and wanted to model his winery and wine culture in America after that. Whereas you have Gallo, and they're like, no, 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 we're just going to focus on data and we're going to just give people what they want. And so you end up with uh, Robert Mondavi starting to craft his legacy at the same same time you have the Gallo brothers um, creating Thunderbird, which went, then became like the number one wine in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And the ingredients were effectively white port with lemon juice concentrate. <laughs> it's like, that's mm-hmm. so bad and terrible. But that, yet there's something interesting, like what, whatever, like America has not yet figured out. I mean, I, I think we're getting there and with globalization and with Instagram and with, with conversation. It's so exciting to see. You know, now, now great wine is made everywhere and can be made anywhere. Um, when the soil is right and the value system is in place. But I think for me, it was like, why? Like, I, I just thought that piece of history was interesting. And then couple that with like moments in Italy from Harvest. I remember the first time I ever had um, an Aperol spritz and it was in the Piazza mm-hmm. of Montalcino in 2008 after a really dismal harvest, like whereas the Burgundy harvest were picture perfect and everyone's been doing this for hundreds of years and the stories are amazing and you're buying taste at night over these remarkable meals. Italy was the opposite for me. It was, um, we were helping out um, my, my husband's then business partner who was actually a bridge player but had bought this estate in Montalcino and didn't know anything about making wine and he was like, hey, I I have a tournament. Can you guys just make this wine for me? Um, <laughs> like, we don't even know what to do here. Uh, this is this is not something we're qualified for. We're happy to help, but um, but like you know, please, nobody have any expectations here. And it was like a, the yeah, it was a very rainy year. The tractor fell over. There was no actual winery. We had a tarp that was over uh, the sorting table. And we were like the only ones with a sorting table. And we were like, well, we see Burgundy does this and it's really important. So we think we should try it here too. Anyway, it was like a very difficult harvest. And the moment of respite was like an afternoon Aperol spritz. And it was brightly colored and happy and and not too bitter, but not too sweet. And I think like what I started to do as I delved a little bit more into it, especially, especially fast forward to like 2013 and 14, it's like, okay, what if we like do some more digging here? What even is the wine cooler? Because I've never been a beer person. I've never found beer delicious, despite you know many college parties in which I, I wish that I had. And I remember at some point in my childhood, somebody brought, I mean, at some point when I was 21, obviously, somebody introduced me to wine coolers and I was intrigued by them because they were less bad tasting than 
cheap beer to me, to my palate. And I think, you know, it took a lot of time for me to realize and just have confidence in my palate. Like at this point I had passed the blind tasting master sommelier exam. And like there were, I was sort of going this very educated or investing in education in this route. And I just felt like, okay, I can't be the only person that still thinks beer is terrible. Um, and there's nothing out here. Like I, I know now that I know enough about production, um, why is there not something meant for casual moments that I'm personally willing to consume? Um, and that was how the idea for Ramona started. And so I know that's a very long-winded answer to your question. Um, but but yeah, that is basically it, it, the idea and the decision to start it happened in 2015. We had just um, we had just gotten a nomination for outstanding wine service at Co. Remember Bobby Stuckey, who's an amazing friend and mentor, had come in with his with his wife Danette and his general manager from Frosca, and he's also sort of in charge of service at the court. And he said the tasting menu that I just experienced at Co. is the best I have had in in recent memory. What you're doing here mm-hmm. is is extraordinary. Congratulations. Um, and then I remember like a week after that is when I left for the master sommelier exam and I I had already passed the tasting. I had, I passed theory that year, um, which was the one I had been so nervous about. And I passed it uh, in in a way that finally felt, felt easy. And then I, I was, I missed the service exam by one table and it was a table of people who have never seen me work in a restaurant that I personally don't know. And the feedback that I was given was not that I ran out of time because I didn't or that I didn't answer the questions right because I had. It was that in their estimation, I didn't seem like myself to them. Um, And it was just this one particular table. And and I remember it was like a big gut punch. Um, And and it took me like a, a little while to sort of process it all. And, and then the next week later, I found out I was, I was pregnant with our son, Henry, and that was unplanned. Um, so it's sort of like the universe has decided that you thought you were going this direction, but now your plans have changed. And it was an opportunity to sort of say, wait a minute, do I, do I really, am I really going to like, is the hill I'm going to die on trying to be more like myself to a group of people that a don't work in restaurants, B have never seen me work in a restaurant. Do I even want that feedback? Is there any way in which like more work or more preparation could, could make me seem more like myself to a group of people who have no idea who I am or what I, what I seem like. Um, And that was like an easy moment to course correct and, and sort of, do this thing that I had felt like was a void in the market for a while. Um, and it was, the timing was good. The timing was, the change was happening and I, I either could sort of take some control over what that change would look like or, or not. And I, and I chose the former. So, so I just want to, I want to kind of follow up on one piece here, which is, you know, you mentioned this idea that at least in maybe your initial conception, Ramona was, uh, you, you saw it as sort of, something that that had a maybe a lineage that it shared with wine coolers you saw it as sort of a like a a very kind of casual drinking experience is that because kind of from the jump you were thinking this is going to be a canned beverage because i I think certainly especially when you were probably thinking about this in in 13 14 15 you know the the conception of what 
of, of a wine-based product in a can was was there weren't very many and they were definitely not seen as anything other than very casual beverages. So, so was it just kind of the, the format that led you to that or, or was it like, Hey, I want something casual. So of course it's then going to go in a can. Totally. So it was, it was more the latter, although cans were never obvious to me. And um, it was until we decided to go with them. It was more like the beverage, the beverage didn't exist. I just saw this big void. And to your point about wine coolers, I would say like we're loosely, Ramona is loose, like Ramona sort of winks at not at wine coolers, mm-hmm. but I would not say we were inspired directly. Like, yeah, it's, it's almost like <laughs> fair. a wine That's fair, I understand. <laughs> a, a wine cooler is sort of a bad American version of a spritz anyway. And if you go down that rabbit hole, it's like the ancient Romans and Greeks used to add water and flavorings to their wine. Nobody drank wine undiluted. So so there's like a funnel in the edge if you want to go down that rabbit hole. But it was more like there was nothing as as much as I was studying fine wine and as much as my life involved fine wine, what I found that I wanted to drink a lot of the time was something low in alcohol and refreshing that in my estimation was also delicious and and adhered to a value system that was important to me. Um, and so I think like, right, it was like whether I'd go out to the beach and have a lobster roll, the options were beer or like a really cheaply made glass of rosé that I wasn't interested in drinking. And, and so it just felt like there's, there's gotta be, and then, and then to your point about wine coolers, I did do some research and, and wine coolers were a massive category in the U S um, in the, in the eighties up until the early nineties. And if you look at this sort of um, what happened, one of the things that happened was that um, the beer lobby very uh, savvily and successfully kneecapped wine coolers with um, a law that Congress passed in 1992, quintupling the excise tax on wine-based products in favor of malt. And so um, I think, I think I will, I, I love that Ramona was so early to the game and I, I love that mm-hmm. to this day we're still like there are so many things in cans now, but but the thing that shocks me honestly is that they're all like, n- nobody it, I, I'm just I, I really want the rest of the can industry to catch up and start producing things organically and making sure that the grapes are if they're going to use malt, which is like a horrible industry because everything is, is sugarcane based. And I know mm-hmm. a lot more about that than I should because of my sister who runs an NGO that pushes multinational corporations to respect human rights. But it's like there's an opportunity for businesses to to make decisions that impact the world on a positive note. And I think, um, yeah, I, I hope we see more of that. As far as cans go, um, as far as cans go, um, it was really a function. And initially my vision for this was that they would be in a bottle, but the more I started researching um, and the more that I wanted to really lean into sort of how do we as a business make decisions that I'm proud of. Um, Uh Aluminum is the most recycled material above glass, above plastic, above anything. And then on top of that, it's the lowest carbon footprint or a much lower carbon footprint than, um, and then trekking glass all over or plastic all over. So uh, it just felt like it felt like the right environmental decision. And it was risky um, because cans. Yeah, I remember people saying, like, 
nobody's going to know where to put this on a shelf and where does this even go? And, um, and so I think it was fortuitous that, that there was enough, um, yeah, enough of a groundswell among cans as a vessel. And, and that, that was something that, um, that, that worked out for us, but that I would, I would be lying if I said that the, the vision was always a can, the vision was always mm-hmm. the product inside of the can and the can made the most sense in terms of an alignment with our value system. So a thing I think that's interesting about the Ramona products is that, you know, um, they, they have, in my experience, at least adhered pretty closely to this idea of the sort of very classic Italian spritz, at least in terms of their, their flavor profile. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that there, there have been times and, and suggestions and maybe even, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, prototypes of, of something kind of outside this very sort of citrus centric, uh, flavor profile. Is it, is it that like, have you come close to expanding what, what stops you if you have, or, or are you just very content with kind of the, the core flavor set and that just works? Yeah, voila, good question. Um, so, and, and this is actually a good lead in to our, our flavor that we'll, we'll be releasing this summer. Um, oh, should... I didn't even know about this. This is good. No, this is, this breaking is news here on the podcast. Breaking news, exactly. I just had a production call this morning. I, I wish we were going to release it sooner, but it's it looks like it's probably going to be <laughs> July. Um, no, I think in, initially, and, and this remains true, but my, my goal is always how can we do things without any, how can we do things that, that I, as a, as a sort of very particular consumer am willing to, am willing and, and excited to drink regularly. And, um, and so one way that we sort of took inspiration from initially that Aperol Spritz, the way that I, the, the most natural way to do that back when I was tinkering with recipes was, was through grapefruit as a flavor uh, because it sort mm-hmm. of is naturally not, it's both bitter and a little sweet and a little salty and it's balanced and it's refreshing. And so that's where we started. We worked with an extract made from organic grapefruits. And then, and then really to that point, to your point, it was sort of like, okay, if that's the sort of if, if that's our, our inspiration for this particular flavor profile, what are the other flavor profiles that we, that we want to consider? And then it was just a whole bunch of tinkering. And the, the thing we always lead with is like, what is delicious? And of course, delicious is sure. it's subjective, but what is delicious to us? Um, and what, and what is missing? And so that led us to produce uh, lemon from, um, some Sicilian organic Sicilian lemons. And that's, that's the other pieces that we did a test batch here in the U S and that, uh, that's where I was introduced to a chemical called Velcarin. I was told we could either use Velcarin. This was like on canning day. So I had spent sure. my savings on, you know, everything. Had It took a year to get to this point and finally the COLA approvals and finally the canning date and all of that. And then I, I learn on canning day that, uh, that the canning facility wants to use Velcarin or potassium sorbate to make this shelf stable. And potassium sorbate gotcha. is a known carcinogen on the whole foods, no fly list. And I just knew I didn't want to touch that. And then the other thing they said is like, and then of course I said, what about sterile filtration? What about, what about all these other things? And, and those were not options according to, uh, you know, this particular moment in time. So anyway, this was when I learned what Velcrin was and it's a neurotoxin in the first 24 hours. It has to be administered with a hazmat suit. It is, yeah. um, 
and it's growing in popularity and does not have to be disclosed. So what I've learned from like some friends in Napa is like a lot of natural wines will just nuke the wine with Velcro nobody has to know. And, and then it sort of doesn't explode on the shelf. Um, but in Italy, we moved production. Like the, the sort of definitive factor for me was, hey, how do we not have to use something weird like this? And in Italy, we just pasteurize in line in warm water. Okay. So... Um, so that, so, so that's when I sort of became really committed to working with Italian ingredients and Italy has its fair share of problems and frustrations to be sure. But one thing they really do prioritize is what they eat and what they drink. And there's just so much emphasis on, on that, which I really love and really respect. Um, and that's how we ended up with Meyer lemon. And then as we were tinkering, we're, you know, we definitely had recipes, in the works for berry flavored things and that and this and that, but at the end of the day, it just, it has to be delicious. And so that's sure. how we landed on blood orange. And then we didn't release a new flavor last year. We did a, the dry grapefruit, which is a sort of the drier, slightly lower in alcohol, 90 calorie version of the Ruby grapefruit. Um, but a recipe that I have been tinkering with and working on for a very long time um, is Basically, instead of taking its inspiration from southern Italy and Sicily, takes its inspiration from northern Italy and Venice. Basically, that basically the Aperol spritz minus the FDNC forty minus the coal tar minus the two hundred and seventy nine grams of sugar per liter. Because Aperol, I think, as a brand is brilliant. Aperol as a product is just so fun and brightly colored. And and I, I, I say Aperol, but really like Aperol is part of its own lineage um, that yep. that emerged. When was it? Yeah, during the. Italian futurist art movement, which I, I just learned, yeah. the futurist art movement actually produced the Russian constructivist movement, which is the design, like our label design is, is inspired by, by that, um, the sort of notion that fine art belongs to everyone and it can be on a poster and it can be in an alley. It doesn't have to live in a gold frame in a museum. And that was sort of, that was, that was the reason for Ramona. I was like, no, no, no. You can be at the beach, you can be on a hike, you can have a sandwich, you know, you can, or you can be at home or you can be at a restaurant, but you can have a beverage for this kind of a moment um, that, 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 you know, that adheres to a value system of, of a lot of these great wines. Um, so our, our new flavor is called Amarino. It means a little bit bitter. Okay. Little, yeah. Basically, Eno is a little bit and Amaro or Amar is, is bitter and it is this beautiful bright color and it is basically like a bitter orange like a bitter it's 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 it is orange in color like orange bitter orange peel and bitter orange is is a major profile but it's um a recipe with a lot of different layers and i'm very excited that we will finally be able to release that um in the summer later this year excellent um a couple other questions for you i'm curious you know I think that we've we've interviewed in, in next round and talked to lots of people about um, you know sommeliers and, and other in, uh, sort of restaurant professionals who um, have either actually done what you've done to some extent, although few of them on the scale that you have, um, or are intrigued by this idea of you know creating a, a a product, creating a brand, leaving the restaurant industry. Was it was it you know you talked about this before, kind of in this maybe. Um, this moment in your career, this inflection point where things went one way instead of another, 
do you miss the the restaurant life? I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot of folks, especially after COVID who are way, or, you know, still dealing with weighing, you know, can you go away and, you know, or is it kind of still a siren song for you? Uh, no. So for me, I think I, I was able to achieve what I set out to achieve with, with in particular the programs at Momofuku. And I feel like I had an amazing set of experiences through the restaurant world. And, and, and it's amazing how many, I remember being terrified of parenthood and there were so many skills that, that actually just translate over really well. You're already used to not sleeping very much. You're already used to, you know, doing things ambidextrously and you know, eating out of a court container really fast. Cause that's what you have. Used to lots and lots of complaining. <laughs> yes, lots of complaining and nothing ever goes the way that it's that you think it will and 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 you just get used to sort of pivoting and thinking on your feet and, and all that. I would say for me it it coincided perfectly with you know the sort of the evolution of my my life and my my sort of my family's needs and my my own desire to be yeah, more present as, you know, with, with my, you know, at that point, like my son Henry was born in January of 2016. Um, and I did, I think I was, I had never intended to use maternity leave to, to focus on Ramona, but I, I found I had, you know, as, as restaurant people were busy all the time, we're used mm-hmm. to doing many things at once. And that was just sort of like a, a baby sleeps a lot. <laughs> so I Yeah, had, it's you know, true. Yeah, I, I had a lot of time to really focus on what is it that I want and how can I, you know, it, the, but the most important question is like, am I doing a thing that fills a genuine need? Because because I, I definitely, with with any decision that we make, whether it's a flavor or, a, you know, a, anything, it's like, what is the why behind it? Why are we doing this? Are we, are we? We like. Does the world need this thing? Do we believe that? Yeah. Do are do we believe in what we're doing, and are we adding to the conversation, or are we just sort of doing something that already exists? Um, and so that's something we try to be really, you know, considerate of. But I think as far as restaurants, I feel like I was really fortunate to to work in them during a period of my life where. Um, where it really made a lot of sense for my life. And um, my husband was in restaurants at the time. He he no longer is as of a couple of years ago, but um, it worked for, it was sort of a, it was just part of life. And in a way that shifted um, sort of that, yeah, I guess I, I think it probably shifted in late 2000, mid to late 2015, where I was like, okay, the things that I hoped to be able to do I've been able to achieve, um, in, in, you know, and, and, and it was time for a new adventure and a new journey. Um, and so I, I feel like I had a full life in restaurants, but I don't, I don't miss the floor. Gotcha. And one last question for you, Jordan. So speaking of kind of additional things you're doing, um, you also have a podcast. Um, so you're, you're a veteran of this medium, uh, called opening up. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how that came to be? And and I I'm led to believe that there's a, another season coming. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, so 
opening up, we launched last September and we decided to, to sort of limit it to 10 episodes. And in short, it, it goes back to that through line of wine as this connective tissue. And I just felt like there are so many different, wonderful people that, um, that have fallen in love with wine and, and have their own story to tell. And so I, um, it was, it was something that I had had hoped to do for a while and had sort of been, been on the table in conversations uh, for, for a while. But then last year with COVID, it was really, it felt like it, it just sort of needed to launch then because that was in a moment where nobody was seeing anybody they didn't really live with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was an opportunity to, to really have these conversations from wherever we were. Um, and I, I loved and appreciated that opportunity to have those connections, those conversations. Um, and, and then as, as we were sort of uh, trying to figure out the cadence, we, we decided we, we do want to keep our seasons to launching in the fall, which is as our, and I like to think of Ramona as seasonless. Uh, however, it does tend to be um, our, our busiest seasons tend to be spring and summer. And so it's a, a really nice way to ease into fall and winter um, and and just stay in touch with um, with people who who also love wine very cool yeah and it definitely seems like from the few episodes I listened to that the the wine is sort of the nominal uh, point of connection for the for you and the guest but it's but it's definitely not a conversation exclusively about wine which no. given the kind of the interesting set of people you have on is very cool oh thank you yeah. I mean, not that, not that there's any shortage of podcasts out there. Uh, you all should be listening to all of our Vine Pair podcasts, for one. But uh, definitely worth checking out as well, uh, especially because I know some of you out there have more and more uh, commute times ahead of you as uh, people actually like go back to work and stuff. Um, well, Jordan, I, I really want to thank you for your time. Um, it's been a pleasure uh, to talk to you, to hear a little bit about this really, in a lot of ways, pioneering product. I think that even if people aren't some of the other, you know, people who are out there making canned, uh, you know, wine products uh, may not even be aware of the debt they owe Ramona. But I think it was, you know, you really, you guys really kind of showed that you could do this in that format and and have it be both delicious and also taken, you know, taken seriously. And and that I think was a big hurdle for for canned wine, canned wine products to to kind of get over because, as you know, mentioned before, it was definitely not the case. I think, you know, more you know, five, six years ago when you guys launched. Oh, Zach, thank you so much for these kind words and really for the opportunity to be part of this conversation and to um and to be part of your program and and um and meet your listeners in this way. Um it's it's been a pleasure and I have a great deal of respect for what you are building and have built and um I'm really happy to have time to, to connect here. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also... I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair's tasting director, who is additionally a producer on this show. 
I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making the show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.